uh, from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. You can follow along with the words on the screen. This is Mary's uh, Magnificent, her, her song of praise to the Lord. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Mary in just a little bit here. So let's read this and you can follow along. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Perhaps you notice the insert in your bulletin. We've been praying for the uh, 17 missionary hostages that have been held hostage in Haiti. Uh, they released a couple of them a few weeks ago, a couple more about 10 days ago. And uh, if you caught this on the national news, uh, the rest of those hostages have been released and so we are grateful for that. Uh, there's a little summary of an article in the bulletin you can read, but I uh, want to give the Lord praise for his protection uh, over them, uh, including a Michigan mom with four young children that was uh, held captive. So let's, uh, let's pray together, and we will remember all of this in, in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for this Christmas season when we celebrate the, the birth of the Savior, the birth of Jesus that gives us hope and assurance and, uh, and peace and joy. And uh, yet we also realize that um, we live in challenging times. And uh, Lord, we all uh, face uh, difficulties at times in our lives. And Lord, thank you for the hope and promise of, of heaven. And the very reason that you came is to be uh, our Savior. And then Lord, we give you thanks for um, the wonderful news this week of uh, hostages that have been released. And so we thank you for your uh, care and protection over these 17 missionaries uh, from Christian Aid Ministries. Lord, thank you that they are home and thank you that they are safe. And we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been looking at life lessons from the Christmas story, and uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the story of uh, Simeon and uh, looked at the lesson of contentment that uh, God had revealed to Simeon that he was not going to die until he saw the Messiah, and uh, how uh, Mary and Joseph came into the, the temple carrying baby Jesus to uh, offer their, their offerings after the birth of Jesus, and uh, Simeon sees uh, the Messiah and he holds him in his arms and he says, now I can depart in peace. Mine eyes have seen Jesus, the Savior. And we talked about contentment and what true contentment is. And then uh, last Sunday, uh, we had a wonderful sermon from Scott Keene and uh, opened up the book of Ruth for us and uh, showed how uh, that whole story ties into the Christmas story and the lineage of, uh, of Jesus and how uh, God was so uh, gracious to uh, to Ruth in that wonderful story. Well, this morning we're going to look at again. The, it's it's the greatest story in the world. It's it's a love story. For God so loved the world, He sent His only Son. It's a rescue story. 
Uh, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come, what, to seek and to save the lost. And so we're going to look at some life lessons from the story of Christmas. And we're going to think about Mary this morning in a message entitled, She Said Yes. So uh, Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Just a couple of introductory truths before we get into the life of Mary. Uh, introductory truth number one as we think about the whole picture of the Christmas story and salvation is this. God's plan of salvation, his rescue story, was established before the creation of the world. This whole matter of sending Jesus into the world wasn't plan B. Uh, it was planned out, Ephesians chapter 1 says, before the foundation of the world, before the world was created, God had put together a plan of redemption. God never has to say, uh-oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, this, was, this was planned out before the creation of the world. Secondly, and we're going to look at Mary and specifically the virgin birth this morning, the second introductory truth is this, that Jesus' arrival through the miracle of the virgin birth was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before he was born. And so 700 B.C., the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this very familiar verse, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. It was really given to King Ahaz, but the, the main meaning was 700 years down the road. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. And so there's all these messianic prophecies. Uh, uh, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2 tells us. Isaiah tells us he's going to be born of a virgin. And so now, 700 years later, after Isaiah's prophecy, uh, we open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 1 and we step into the story. And here we see the angel Gabriel entering uh, time and space and making some very strategic announcements. You have to remember that uh, this follows 400 years of silence. It's called the silent years. Between the close of the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets, 400 years where there's no new revelation, there's no prophet, God seemingly is totally silent until we come to the Gospels, until we come to Luke chapter 1 and and the uh, angel Gabriel makes his appearance to uh, an elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they're serving in the temple, and angel Gabriel says, your prayers have been answered. Your wife, Zechariah, is going to conceive and have a son, and his name is going to be called John. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so as we step into our story in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 26, uh, Luke, Dr. Luke uh, gives us some context to this and some timing to this. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So now Elizabeth is six months along, and six months later, the angel Gabriel makes another announcement, another appearance. And let's look at it as we begin to think about uh, the place where this happened. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. 
And so now Luke's, Dr. Luke's setting the, the context for us, the storyline. This takes place in Nazareth, and Luke adds, a town in Galilee. And he has to add that because we're going to find out Nazareth was a very, very small town. So if, if uh, in our context here, if we're from Manchester, we're talking to somebody that's not familiar with Manchester, we'll probably say, uh, I'm from Manchester in southeastern Michigan. And that gives them a little bit of geography context. Well, Nazareth was this little town. And it was located about 55 miles uh, from uh, Jerusalem. And I find it fascinating that the greatest story ever told begins not in a power center uh, like uh, Rome, not in the religious center of, of events like Jerusalem, not in some sort of economic center, but in a little village that no one probably had ever heard of, 55 miles north of Jerusalem, called Nazareth, a town that didn't have a very good reputation either. When, when Nathaniel was uh, uh, brought by Philip, and Philip says, I found the Messiah, he's Jesus from Nazareth, and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> that, that, that little village with not a very good reputation? the best estimate of Nazareth's population at the time of Luke chapter 1 was 400 people. Now, we live in a small town in our area here, but 400 people is very, very small. And it was in this little village of Nazareth that God begins to work and introduce the beginning of the greatest story ever told. It's always fascinating when somebody makes national prominence from a really, really small town. Remember President Jimmy Carter, God bless Jimmy Carter, he's still around today. I don't know how old he is, 97, 98 years old, uh, oldest living president. Um, for years and years taught, taught Sunday school in that church in Plains, Georgia. But uh, our, our president, Carter, came from Plains, Georgia. I looked up the 2019 census. There's 640 people that live in Plains, Georgia. A little, little tiny town. And yet the president of the United States came from an obscure town that nobody ever heard of until President Carter um, became governor of Georgia and eventually president of the United States. My wife and I, um, one of the few shows we like to watch together on TV is uh, The Voice. And I don't know if some of you watch, watch The Voice or care about The Voice. I find it a fascinating show. And so um, earlier this week, they had the finals of The Voice and uh, came down to the last top five people. And um, the, the winner of The Voice was um, uh, actually a trio, uh, three siblings that won the show, uh, their their title of their trio is a little unusual. A girl named Tom. It's because the brothers used to call their sister Tom, but that's the name of the trio. I found out they're from Pettisville, Ohio. Probably none of us has ever heard of Pettisville, Ohio. And I'm like, wow, that's they're from Ohio. And I kind of did some research on it. I'm like, oh, they're from an hour south of here in Fulton County, just west of Toledo, Pettisville, Ohio, population 538. <laughs> and they just won the national 
TV show, The Voice. Well, it's always fascinating when, when God moves and, and takes someone out of a small town and, and elevates them to great prominence. And uh, that is what happened um, as, as the scene is, is set. So that's the place that's in this little obscure village of Nazareth. And now we're going to look at the person. And uh, we continue to, to read here in uh, verse 27, four pieces of information about Mary. Uh, so in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Here's our four pieces of information. Number one, to a virgin. I find it interesting that Luke doesn't first identify her by name. Uh, the, the first thing he says about this, this person is that she's a virgin. Now, that sounds kind of odd unless we put it in the context of what he's trying to tell us. Like, no, this is, remember the prophecy about 700 years earlier from Isaiah? Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And so the first piece of information that that Dr. Luke gives us about uh, the person here in this story is that, that, that she's a virgin. This is incredibly important, not only because it fulfills the prophet Isaiah, but it's, it's crucial to be part of God's plan of salvation. Because God's plan of salvation requires a perfect, sinless sacrifice that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Remember uh, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. You're to find a lamb that is without blemish and offered as a sacrifice. And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so uh, the Savior of the world needed to be perfect. And that means that he could not have a human father because the, the sin is passed on through, through Adam. As in Adam, all have sinned. And so the virgin birth is crucial to the doctrine of salvation. And uh, the, the scriptures are very, very clear on um, the key doctrine of the virgin birth. What specifically does that mean? It means that Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the direct act of God. That no male, no male was involved in the conception of Jesus. It was uh, an act of God. Uh, we see that in uh, Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew's tracing the, the genealogy to, of Jesus, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. It's interesting how, how the scriptures record that there. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. It doesn't say Joseph was the father of Jesus. It specifically says Mary was the mother of Jesus. And so God, Jesus was fully man without sin, and he was fully God. It's called the theological term is the hypostatic union. And it's crucial to, uh, to our salvation. So here's the first piece of information about this person. They're a virgin, but then we learn a little bit more. 
And uh, Dr. Luke goes on to say, a virgin, this is the NIV, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Some of your translations might say betrothed is the old King James word. So in our cultural context, we would say um, she's engaged. She's engaged to be married. And uh, the engagement period back in the first century was a little bit different from what um, how we celebrate and think about engagements today. That in the first century Jewish culture, a betrothal or an engagement was legally binding. So once you once you had that commitment, that betrothal, that engagement, uh, this is this is a, a legal situation. And if you're to get out of that, you're going to have to have a divorce. And that's why it says in, in the book of Matthew that, that Joseph, once he found out Mary was pregnant, was going to try to just cause her um, a lot of less shame and embarrassment. And he was going to quietly divorce her until the angel came and explained what was going on to Joseph. So this is a, a legally binding uh, arrangement. A divorce was was required to nullify it. The betrothal period usually lasted six months to a year. So it's six months to a year. The couple did not live together. And then at the end of that period, six months to a year, they would have the wedding feast. And that would be the official wedding ceremony. It would last usually a week long. And uh, the couple then would come together. The marriage would be consummated and and uh, their married life would begin. And so now we know this is, this is a virgin at this, um, uh, in the context here. She's engaged, betrothed to a, a man by the name of Joseph. Uh, we have a third piece of the puzzle here, a descendant of David. A descendant of David. Of course, now that's crucial as well. Because what? The Messiah was prophesied to come through what? The line of David. And it's the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God said to David, you know, from your lineage, someone will be on the throne forever. And so the Messiah had to come through the lineage of David. And now the author, Dr. Luke, is telling us, hey, this person fits exactly the scriptures, the Messiah's prophecy. She's a virgin. Um, they're from the, the lineage of David. So they're from the, the, the line of David that the Messiah has prophesied. And then, almost as an afterthought, um, fact number four. Oh, by the way, by the way, virgin engaged to be uh, married to Joseph, descended from David. Oh, by the way, her name's Mary. Her name's Mary. That's, that's, that's the person, the key person um, in this story. Now, most commentators think that Mary, age-wise, when this all happened, that Mary was anywhere from 14 to 16 years old. That's just a young teenager. And I was just thinking about, hmm, who, who might be close to that age? And Lydia, how old are you? Okay, I just turned 16. So there, there you go. That's, that's, that's what we're talking about age-wise. This is a young teenage girl. And now her life's about to be turned upside down. And so now we come to 
the proposal. The place is Nazareth. The person is Mary. Here is the proposal. Uh, put yourself, your mindset into, into Mary's um, thought process here as a, a 15, 16-year-old girl who's looking forward to being married to, uh, to Joseph someday. Uh, let's look at this, the story now. Verse 20, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There's that Davidic lineage. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So here's 16-year-old Mary, and all of a sudden the angel Gabriel makes an appearance and uh, turns her world upside down. Mary, you're going to have a baby. And this baby is is the savior of, of, of the world. He's going to be called the son of the most high. He's going to reign on the throne of David. His kingdom will never end. Mary asks a question. She doesn't doubt the message, but she's wondering, and it's a natural question, probably the elephant in the room. She's like, well, how is this going to happen? How is this going to be? Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? So Gabriel answers, and, and, uh, and here's what Gabriel says. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. So Mary says, how's this going to happen? And the angel doesn't get into great detail, but the, the angel Gabriel uh, begins to explain it. says, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The, the Greek word is episkiazo. It speaks of God's presence. Uh, Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this same word to describe the glory of God filling the tabernacle. The word overshadow suggests God's powerful presence will rest on Mary so that she will bear a child who will become the Son of God. And for the God who spoke the world into existence in Genesis chapter 1, who ten times said, let there be, and God said, and light happened, and as God spoke, he spoke this world into existence. This is no problem for an omniscient, omnipotent God. And so God's presence is going to come over Mary, and Mary is going to conceive uh, a son, and he will be called uh, the Savior. Well, what we want to now kind of drill down on as we begin to wrap this up is the positive response. So the place is Nazareth. 
The person is a virgin, engaged to Joseph, a descendant of David. Her name is Mary, a young teenage girl. Here's the proposal. Uh, God's presence is going to come on you and overshadow you, and you're going to conceive and give birth to a son by the name of Jesus. And how does Mary respond? This is one of the most remarkable verses, in, I believe, in, in all the Bible. She could have responded and said, um, you know, I, I kind of need to think about this for a while. Um, it's really going to complicate my life, and it's not really, you know, I had all this planned out, and this is really going to complicate things. I, I need to think about it. She could have said, um, you know, I appreciate that, but I'd like to talk to Joseph before I respond. I mean, that might, this might complicate things, and... Uh, not quite sure how I'm going to ex- would explain that to uh, to Joseph. She could have said, "Well, I, I need to talk to my mom and dad. I need to talk to my parents." No, Mary doesn't say any of that. Although at this point, Mary has no idea whether this will end her relationship with Joseph. How will she explain this to him? She responds with humility, submission, and obedience. Look at it in verse thirty-eight. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. <laughs> oh, what a positive response. You know, in, in our, our culture today, um, you know, in, engagements have just taken on a whole new uh, f- flavor with, uh, with social media. And so when when someone gets engaged today, they put it out there on social media, Facebook or other social media sites, and there's all sorts of pictures and uh, comments, and sometimes they'll hold up a sign and they're saying, she said yes, or sometimes that's in the, the explanation and the comments, she said yes. Well, Mary said yes to God's proposal. The commentary by John MacArthur We read Mary was in an extremely embarrassing and difficult position. Betrothed to Joseph, she feared the stigma of unwed motherhood. Joseph would obviously had known that the child was not his. She knew she would be accused of adultery, an offense punishable according to Mosaic law by stoning. Yet she willingly and graciously submitted to the will of God. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And with those 12 words, uh, the course of of history and humanity and the Christmas story was sent into motion. Well, the rest of Luke chapter 1, I'm sure you're familiar with. Mary goes down and she visits uh, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And we read that incredible scene where when Mary comes in, um, Elizabeth says, John the Baptist, the baby, leaped, leaped in her womb at the presence of Mary, and, and who's now with, with child. And, of course, uh, following that, we, we read uh, Mary's song of praise that God has chosen her to be this uh, deliverer, the mother of the Savior of the world. Well, let's look at three life lessons as we um, kind of wrap this up from Luke chapter 1 and life lessons from the Christmas story and what can we learn from, from Mary and Luke chapter 1. 
And here's, here's the first life lesson that I want to uh, point out. This is from verse 37. And it's Gabriel's closing statement to Mary. Uh, verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. We need to remember this morning, God's word, this book is infallible. This is the very word of God. All scripture is inspired by God and and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. It is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. It is unlike any other book. I looked up the word infallible in the Oxford Dictionary. It means incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. And boy, do we need some guidance today in our world today about what is truth what is right? What is wrong? And Gabriel says to Mary, no word from God will ever fail. That's confusing today. And um, all the different media outlets and news sources that we have to try to discern what is true. So back when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, we had... ABC, CBS, NBC, three, three main networks. Walter Cronkite was a CBS newscaster for probably 30 years. For year after year, he was voted the most trustworthy man in America. And all of America would tune in, listen to Walter Cronkite. He would give us the news, and then he would say, and that's the way it is, December 19th, 2021. And and people just knew that, okay, this is, this is truth. He's a trustworthy person. Now fast forward 50 or 60 years, and, and uh, who's telling, is CNN telling the truth? Is Fox News telling the truth? Can we trust the mainstream media? Um, where can we find truth? And it's confusing today, even in this whole um, COVID-19 world that we live in, and by the way, still, we've got families that are quarantining today. It's just COVID-19 is not going away. And so who do we believe? What group of scientists do we believe? Because there's, there's, good, there's people on both sides of the issue. And the encouragement this morning is that we can come to this book and we can have absolute confidence in the truth of God's word, in the promises of God's word, because no word of God, angel Gabriel said, will ever fail. Here's how Jesus said it, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The old King James says, not one jot or one tittle. It would be like saying, not one dotted I, not one cross T. Every word in this book is true and will be truth. And so that gives us confidence and assurance today. Confidence and assurance of the promises of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That just as Jesus came the first time to be our Savior and Redeemer, he's coming again. And he's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we can count on that. God's word is infallible. Therefore, we have hope and confidence and trust in him and his word. Secondly, the second life lesson is this. God often accomplishes his plan and purpose in unusual ways. God often accomplishes his plan and his purpose in unusual ways. In 1993, the Christmas song um, was written. I don't know who wrote the song, but it's entitled, A Strange Way to Save the World. (laughs) And it certainly was a strange way to save the world. An obscure teenager, an obscure village uh, through the virgin birth. Uh, delivering a baby in Bethlehem in a, in a cave, in a, in, a, in a stable, in a manger. The king of kings arrives in a very unusual way. God often accomplishes his plan and purposes in unusual ways. That's all through the Old Testament as well. You know, the story of uh, Israel's first battle and victory in the battle of, of Jericho. And uh, God comes to Joshua and says, this is how this is going to work. You're going to march around Jericho once, uh, once for se- six days, and on the seventh day you're going to march around seven times. You're going to blow your trumpets, break your pitchers, and give a great call and uh, cry, and the walls are going to come down. And uh, well, That's how that victory is going to be won, huh? Yeah, yeah. God often accomplishes his plan and his purpose in unusual ways. And so, Isaiah 55, uh, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. God often accomplishes his purposes and plans in unusual ways. And oftentimes the unexpected and the unplanned occurs in our life. Um, The longer I live, the more I realize that uh, most of the time things don't go according to our plans. But God has a different plan, and, and God has unusual ways of, of accomplishing His purposes. So Jerry Bridges in the book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, writes, God is in control. He is sovereign. He does whatever pleases Him and determines whether we can do what we have planned. This is the essence of God's sovereignty. No creature, person, or empire can thwart His will or act outside of the bonds of his will. And so John W. Peterson years ago wrote a Christmas cantata and said, so when you don't understand what God is doing, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart, because he's a good, sovereign God. And his plan and purposes will be accomplished, but most likely not in the ways that we thought. 
but he still wants us to trust him. So God often accomplishes his plan and purposes in unusual ways. Thirdly and lastly, and then we're, we're done here this morning, is this life lesson number three, that we should model Mary's response to God's word. And so the, 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 key, the key verse here, Luke chapter 1, when, when all of this news is, is coming to Mary and she's trying to process it and, and uh, the angel Gabriel has told her this news that's going to uh, upset her life and upset her world. And the angel says, no word from God will ever fail. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And in Mary's... Uh, uh, song of praise that she uh, gives then in, in verses uh, 46 and following in Luke chapter 1. Again, she identifies herself as God's servant, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So when Mary says, I'm your servant, uh, the, the King James uses the word handmaid. It's the Greek word doule. You know, there's two words for servants in the Old Testament. There's the word diakonos, which means you're, you're serving other people. It's the word we get the word uh, deacon from. But a doulos was something different. This is how the Apostle Paul viewed himself in the epistles often in his writings. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, servants of, of Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And so while diakonos, the servant, uh, is a call to a life of serving others, the word doulos is a call to become a slave of the master. A servant is hired to do something. A slave is someone owned by someone else. And that's the word that Mary uses. God, I'm your servant. I'm your doulos. I'm your, your lifelong servant, and my life belongs to you. And so, Lord, whatever you ask me to do, may your word be fulfilled. I'm going to submit in humility and obedience to God. Well, if we know Christ as our Savior, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20, that... Um, we don't belong to ourselves. And he writes in verse 19 to the Corinthian church, don't you know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, and you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And Paul reminds us that our life, if we're a follower of Jesus, doesn't belong to us. That we need to respond like, like Mary whenever we, we hear God's uh, word and read God's word. That we need to respond exactly how Mary responded. Not, do I need to think about it? Do I need to ask somebody? But we need to respond with humility and obedience. Why? Because our lives no longer belong to us. But they belong to him. So Jesus asked the question in Luke 6:46, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say?" 
And we need to have a high view of Scripture. And the high view of Scripture is the view that every word of Scripture is God's truth. It's God's word. It is without error. It, it is infallible. And so God's word then comes in an authoritative way to us. And we need to learn from the life of Mary that whenever we hear and read God's word, our response needs to be um, humility and obedience. Remember the story of Samuel? Little Samuel that uh, Hannah prayed for and finally God gave uh, Hannah a son and she promised that she'd give him to the Lord. And so Eli raises the prophet, uh, raises little boy Samuel in, in the tabernacle. And one night Samuel's in bed. He's just a young boy and he hears his voice and he, he runs to Eli and says, did you call me? And Eli says, no, go back to bed. And it happens the second time and it happens the third time. And finally Eli says, hey, next time you hear that voice, it might be the voice of God. Here's what I want you to say, Samuel. I want you to say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And the next time that voice came, that's how Samuel responded. That's how Mary responded. And that's how we should respond. Three lessons. God's word is infallible. It will never lead us astray. It's incapable of being wrong. God accomplishes his purposes in unusual ways. And so if there's some things in your life that you can't quite figure out what's happening, just keep trusting him. God is at work. And lastly, we need to model marriage response. I'm your servant. May your word be fulfilled to me. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, the Christmas story. Lord, what, a, what an unusual, remarkable story. What a strange way to save the world. And yet we're thankful that, uh, that the players in the Christmas story, and specifically Mary, said yes to you, even though it was going to complicate her life, even though, as, uh, as was prophesied by, um, by uh, Simeon, that the, there'd be a, a sword that would pierce Mary's soul, she would have to stand at the foot of the cross someday and watch her son, Jesus, die that most excruciating death. Lord, we're thankful that Mary said yes. And so, Lord, may we respond in the same way when we hear your word, when we read your word. Lord, when we sense you uh, moving us to do something, may we respond with hum humility, uh, submission, and obedience. Lord, we are your servant, and may your word to us be fulfilled. Lord, thank you that we can have uh, this confidence and trust in you and in your word. Thank you that the last chapter has already been wit written and that uh, God wins. And Lord, uh, we need that hope and encouragement in the uh, difficult world in which we live. We'll thank you now. Jesus.